Welcome back, Blue Suit readers and listeners. What I wanted to do here is this is going to be the audio portion to the Substack. Um, essentially, what I'm going to be talking about is uh, picking the best companies and exactly what you're going to be looking for. And I wanted to put together an overall guide. So please excuse me if there's any short pauses here where maybe I'm catching my breath or you know, taking a drink of water, as this Substack is relatively long. Um, but now I'm going to be recording this straight through. <clears throat> The Substack has evolved over time and I discussed many different topics. What I have come to realize is that although not always, I'm not always right, my mission is always the same. I really am dedicated to being a change in people's financial future uh, through reading or through teaching the core principles of investing. What I ended up finding was an article by Bloomberg and it was titled Millennials Live Paycheck to Paycheck. And I'm going to be talking about, throughout this entire Substack here, I'm going to be uh, referencing things that are in the Substack. Um, and there's actually a link that you can click on here. But based on this latest article uh, from Bloomberg, nearly half of millennials live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, when we break this down even further, only 30% of millennials say that they are taking steps towards saving for retirement. This is an extremely small percentage of Americans between the ages of 25 and 40. When we factor in the biggest problem of all, how we are even able to save money, we can really pinpoint exactly how difficult this has been for an entire generation. The average American is solely dependent on 401ks, usually getting by their employer, to get by later in life because we can forget traditional ways of investing for retirement or saving for retirement. Generations before us had low-risk options like bonds, government bonds uh, that usually yielded a higher amount, savings accounts that also yield a higher amount, or pensions that we had from our employers. But all of these methods have vanished. This really brings me to the point of this publication. Because I am dedicated to teaching the principles of investing, I am much more inclined to teach a man how to fish rather than giving uh, the man, that same man a fish. Uh, many different investment services have a follow along with my portfolio approach, but rarely does this actually work for the individual investor who is dependent on someone else's moves. What really works is by passing knowledge down that enables the investor to take control of their own financial destiny. If I do my work correctly, I believe that many subscribers that I have today will not have stayed subscribe, subscribed to my Substack over time. I believe the lessons learned in this one will have a sort of impact, and I'm going to be talking specifically about stock picking, analyzing a business successfully, what to look for in business financial statements, what a good investment looks like, and where to find all this information for free. So what do you need to know about investing into the stock market? This should go without saying, but the amount of noise and complications that come while participating in the financial markets is very loud. I believe this noise all comes in good faith because it is meant to manage risk, to mitigate, mitigate any sort of downturn in an individual's portfolio. However, however, investors must understand that this typically is manufactured by Wall Street because the businesses that they are in, the business that they participate in is different than the business that we as individual investors are in. Wall Street money managers focus on quarters, metrics, returns, and goals over a shorter time horizon. People give Wall Street, uh, like hedge funds, banks, and institutions money with the expe expectation that they're going to get a desired yield. In almost all cases, this yield is measured in quarters or years. This means that they can't necessarily focus just on businesses over the long period of time. Their focus must be on multiple different asset classes to generate a return. Let's simplify exactly what the stock market is. It is a market of business equity or stock. 
That means that each one of these ticker symbols represents a business. When the price goes up or down, it is only fluctuating on the perceived value or supply and demand of the equity. In many cases, this perceived value quickly fluctuates and the price fluctuates. The factors that in the short term manipulate the value of the stock include economic headwinds or tailwinds, interest rate fluctuations, perceived competition, news headlines, insiders buying or selling. Basically, the supply and the demand of the business equity will often fluctuate with no reason, rationale that's tied directly to the business. Let that sink in. People will buy and sell business equity with no real understanding of the business or changes in the business. Market participants will often buy business equity just because they think it's going to go up and will often sell just because they think it's going to keep going down. I bring, this, I bring up the simplification and rationale to really put things into context. We as investors must genuinely digest that fundamental understanding. People will buy and sell business equity with no real rationale on the underlying business's performance. Overlooking this key and very important detail is exactly why so many people lose money in the markets or quit. Countless times I've seen investors quit investing because they simply think that things will just keep going down forever. But this begets a crucial question. What changed with the business? What you need to know about investing in the markets is that the noise is extremely loud and the businesses you are investing in doesn't necessarily need to do anything for its stock price to move. But when, you, but when it comes to sustainable moves upward for a stock, it universally has one reason why it does this. The business is fundamentally improving its revenue, earnings, and cash position. I have to repeat that one more time. Stock price sustainably goes up because the underlying business improved its revenue, earnings, and cash position. That means that in order to generate real, long-term returns, investors should buy equity in good businesses at good prices. It's that simple. Honestly, it's that simple. Buy good companies at good prices, then let the company grow over time. <clears throat> Evaluating a business, is it a good or is it a bad investment? Our daily lives are often linked to businesses with stocks that are being traded on the financial markets. For example, I am writing this Substack on an Apple computer. Substack is still a private company, but Apple is publicly traded. You may have been linked to this Substack through Twitter, a publicly traded company where I have grown a bulk of my audience. Despite using all these products and services, it does not always mean that their business is going to be good to invest in. There are many different factors that will determine what is good and what is bad, but the most important of which is how effective the business is at generating cash and earnings over the long term. Think of this as a puzzle. We know what the puzzle is supposed to look like, but there are a lot of pieces that we need to put together. The primary factors that determine a company's long-term success can include the market of which they operate in, competition and leadership positions in given markets, financial statements like income statements, balance sheets, or cash flow statements, the business model and how effective it is at retaining and growing clients and generating cash, or the demand for their product or service. The job of the investor is to put a mental checklist together to understand the total picture to make a judgment. To further explain, I'm going to show you my process and how I analyze one of my favorite businesses, Global E, and explain what I am looking for and where I find the information. So when I cover, when I first discovered Global E, it caught my attention like many of my other investments. I noticed the financial metrics were very appealing and they were growing very quick, profitably. If a company is growing revenue effectively, this is almost always justification for investing my time to discover and understand the business more. 
when we look at the business model of Global E, I, I first discovered and under I always try to first discover and understand what the business model is trying to the overall picture of the business model. The best place to really uh, to look is not always going to be other investors' write-ups, but simply the company's own website. The reason why I chose not to read other investors' write-ups on individual businesses has a lot to do with the potential bias. An investor may publish an article and only see what they want to see, overlooking the potential risks and uncertainties. Basically, I do look at it like a sales presentation. And when first looking at a company's website, you must ask yourself a few key questions. What are they trying to sell and how do they help their customers? Basically, you are attempting to put together a story of who they are and what they do. A common mistake I see with most investors is that this is typically the furthest they will go in their analysis. A majority of research will, will be spent understanding their business model to such an in-depth level that it will often be overlooked at for what really is supposed to matter. Revenue, earnings, and cash flow. In Global E's situation, you can get a pretty good understanding or good picture of what they do when you look through their website. Essentially, they enable cross-border e-commerce transactions. A good question to ask once you understand what their good slash service is, how do they help their customers? The absolute best place for investors to look is going to be the investor relations tab on a company's website. This is where we find very important resources like investor presentations, Investor conference calls, investor day, present, investor day presentations, not just the PDF document, but actually a day where they, where they do in coverage of their entire business model, or individual earning reports like 10Ks, 10Qs, press releases, and company financials. To discover more about what the business does and how they help their clients, one of the best areas you can look is actually going to be underneath the events tabs in the investor relations. I can't tell you how many businesses that I've looked at and actually listened to those presentations just to get a good understanding of whether or not that's a good potential investment. In Global E's situation, you can see that they have a few upcoming calls in May and June. However, there are always archived past presentations that are equally as important. The format of these calls with Needham, Oppenheimer, JP Morgan, or Morgan Stanley is always going to be similar to some sort of fireside chat. Q&A type of session. These questions are often extremely helpful in getting a holistic picture of what the business does, how they help their customers, and what they are trying to become long-term. I have found that understanding where the business is going long-term is equally as important as understanding what they do today. The market is not dumb. It is forward-looking. Try to look at what a business is, who they are becoming, and who they want to become. It is important to also understand the market and the opportunity and the competition that they go against. Once you get an understanding of who this business is and what they do, investors should immediately seek to understand the market they operate in. The market's growth and their top competitors. In many cases, this type of research is best done through third-party resources. I've consistently found that the company over-exaggerates the market opportunity and their position in the market, but third-party resources don't lie. A good place to get started is always just going to be a simple Google search. In this case, you can see that there are a few resources, and I'm, re I'm referencing a picture here in the Substack. And in this particular picture, I ended up choosing uh, Statista's website, which I really like. And what you can see, and I actually pulled this picture up here as well, is that the retail e-commerce uh, market is, is projected to grow substantially all the way through 20 and all the way through 2025. 
to, I think this is going to be measured in 7.3 or seven, roughly $7.4 trillion. I cannot underestimate the importance of a growing market opportunity. This leaves room for error when it comes to the business and creates a tailwind at the back of many investment opportunities. If the market opportunity compound annual growth rate is less than 15%, the business must be demonstrating that it is clearly taking market share. However, from an investor standpoint, I have found that the best stocks are located in secular market opportunities because it is a new, emerging market and opportunity. Usually in these younger markets, competition is not as solidified and the participants are all competing for the top spot and market leadership position. This is where I try to find a majority of my investments. In Global E's case, this is a perfect example. Let me briefly explain. So Global E enables cross-border e-commerce, which helps clients navigate the complexities of, of legality, um, payments, distribution and shipping, or local ge geographic capabilities. Just think of the complexities of cross-border commerce and, and, this, and this is where they help. So think about the complexities of what a business may need to do. Because of their core competencies, they operate in a global e-commerce market on a business model basis. Where they exclusively do cross-border e-commerce, they stand alone in this category. There really is no significant direct competition, but there is such thing as indirect competition. For example, big commerce has cross-border functionality, Shopify, who owns a 10% stake in globally, has a similar solution for smaller clients. D-Local, another one of my investments, handles the payment processing portion of cross-border commerce. Nuve, uh, I think it's Adian, and Stripe all do sim something similar in more developed countries because globally has a payment solution service. Mercado Libre is essentially going to be an e-commerce uh, platform out of Latin America. C Limited is an e-commerce platform in Southeast Asia, and Amazon dominates must, much of the quote-unquote West. The thinking here from an investor standpoint is that although there may be no real direct competition, indirect competition is just as relevant. Another example I can think of here is, that I believe taught all of us investors the importance of indirect competition is Peloton. And I actually pulled up their stock chart here if you guys want to reference that. So Peloton sells at-home work equipment. Their core product is a bike with a television attached to it. They would hire their own trainers and have their own workout classes. And you can imagine how this is a major beneficiary during the COVID-19 pandemic because gyms were closed down. The indirect competitor in this case are all going to be gyms like LA Fitness, Lifetime Fitness, Snap Fitness, etc. All of their indirect competition was closed for the better part of 2020. As a result, Peloton's stock surged and their, and their sales, sales surged. During 2021, Peloton's stock did end up collapsing and the story completely unraveled. Many retail investors got hurt because they failed to understand how important indirect comp competition is to long-term business thesis. To really simplify this point, competition both direct and indirect can destroy a business. Do your absolute best to find market leaders in a growing market. The odds become substantially in your favor. If you're investing into a lot of software stocks like I do, Gartner usually provides a really compelling market analysis. And I, I, and I am going to reference a magic quadrant, a picture of that, and that's going to be in the Substack. I did provide an example of the endpoint security market with Sentinel-1 and CrowdStrike. This market analysis by Gartner is called a quote-unquote magic quadrant. Investors should know that all investing decisions can't be made with those only in the leadership quadrant. 
This is more of a useful tool to understand the market more than it is for used for investing decisions. The best way for investors to read the magic quadrant is that niche players usually don't present the best opportunity. Challengers usually have a strong business and operating model. This is the, I like to think of it as like the execution quadrant. Visionaries usually have substantial uh, product innovations and could be leading from a technological perspective. And leaders have both the, both the best of both categories, meaning they execute well and they usually have really good tech. Ideally, one would think that you just pick stocks in the leader quadrant, it should turn out good, right? Not always, because remember, the only thing that gets a stock to go up intrinsically over time is when they grow revenue, cash flows, and earnings. If a business is executing well with great technology, but they are not yielding profits and don't have a path to profitability, the stock just won't move. There's no better example of this on the financial markets than Nutanix. And I've provided a stock chart with them where they've essentially traded sideways since sideways to down since their IPO. And that's been five years ago. <clears throat> so reading the financial statements, what it really does is it brings the story, the thesis that you developed to full circle. Understanding the business model is extremely helpful. Investors need to know what a business does, where the business is going, how they make money. In addition, knowing and understanding competition is equally important, but none of this matters if the financial of a, financials of a company is messy. Remember, the only reason a stock goes up and stays up is if it successfully grows revenue, earnings, and cash flow over time. The best example of this is Crocs, ticker symbol C-R-O-X. And I am going to reference a chart here as well where you can see that the IPO price was about $10, and now it's trading at about roughly 80. And you can see that the, the Croc stock chart has appreciated rapidly over the past few years, approximately the past four or five. Uh, the business model is the easiest thing in the world to understand. They sell Crocs, which are these type of sandal shoe things. It's not anything special. There's no super innovative technological breakthrough, and they actually kind of look funny. But over the past few years, they have successfully grown revenue and earnings. The picture below, and I'm referencing another picture, it's from Yahoo Finance, where the green bars represent revenue and the blue bars represent earnings. And for those of you who are just listening, you can see that from 2018, the revenue was about $1.1 billion, and then their earnings uh, was probably about $5 billion. And then today, they have revenue of approximately $230 billion, or $2.3 billion, I should say. And then their earnings are about $70 billion. So they've grown substantially over time. Going back to analyzing Global E, we understand that they do cross-border e-commerce, which sounds like a pretty good idea. In addition, we know that their competition is limited in a direct fashion, but in an indirect fashion, it may present some risks. We also know that their market opportunity long-term is growing exponentially as global e-commerce becomes more relevant. At this point, we have a general thesis on our business. As mentioned earlier, many investors stop at just developing the thesis and understanding the story but this is a fundamentally flawed framework. As investors, three financial reports make or break our entire investing thesis. They are the income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow statement. These statements shouldn't necessarily be, be perceived as an end-all be-all or an absolute to an investing framework. They should be used in conjunction with the thesis you have developed between the market opportunity and the understood business model. When looking at Global East financials, 
I've often found that Yahoo Finance is a really good free platform for investors to use. The first thing that we should do is check the historical trends both annually and quarterly. I have made arguments that this is the most important step in stock picking. The reason why it's so important is it tells you if a business is growing or declining. In addition, it tells you how consistently it's growing. Ideally, we are seeking to find investments with growing revenue, even if it's not as rapid as Global E. A good example here is Home Depot, which is a much more mature dividend stock that provide a snapshot of Home Depot's revenue going up over time. In both cases, it's very important to recognize the general revenue growth. A growing business is a healthy business. Otherwise, you run a risk of catching the business on its decline and in the back half of its life cycle. I provided an image in the Substack that describes this life cycle. In my strategy, I try to find businesses that are considered in the growth stage. Once again, I'm referencing an image here in the Substack. However, I wouldn't necessarily say my way is the best way, uh, but the principles are still the same. There is lower risk and lower volatility when it comes to investing in businesses in the maturity phase. In addition, mature businesses usually pay a dividend and decline substantially less during stock market crashes. Think of Home Depot, Apple, or even Restoration Hardware. When you have a general picture of the revenue and earnings trends over the past five years, an investor must first understand that not all revenue is made the same. In many cases, investors have a difficult time separating the differences between stock valuations and why one stock may be at a higher price to sales ratio than another. The reason why one stock has a better line, better bottom line financial metric than the other. And then I'm, I'm going to reference a global e-income statement. This is going to be a picture here on the Substack. If you're familiar with an income statement, the first thing you may notice is how it the first thing you may notice about how Global E is operating unprofitably under GAAP metrics. And GAAP stands for generally accepted accounting principles. But we first have to break this down a little more to look for exactly what we need to understand. A few questions you need to ask yourself is what is the trend of revenue? Is it improving? Are there quarters where it fluctuates? What is the gross profit? And what is the trend of the gross profit margin? What is the gap operating profit or loss? And what's the trend there? What is the gap or what is the margin on gap net income? Gap, once again, stands for generally accepted accounting principles. More on this in a little bit. Remember, the reason why you are looking at the financial statements in the first place is to validate your original thesis on the business model and total market opportunity. If you get a good understanding of the market that it's operating in and you know that the business has years of growth ahead of it, tons of businesses may operate unprofitably, at least under a gap basis they do. More on this when I cover the cash flow statement. In regards to Global E, one of the first things I noticed is how their gross margins were improving rapidly with scale while still maintaining its growth trajectory. The high growth trajectory circles back to my original thesis of the story. I assumed that international cross-border e-commerce market will be on a growth trajectory for years. I believe that this is a play on a secular e-commerce trends in our world. Knowing what I know about the market and how it's projected to grow, Global E will operate within this market. The years up until this point, Global E has demonstrated that it has an ability to grow within this market somewhere between a 90% compound annual growth rate. This growth rate is extremely fast and way above average. And I'm going to reference once again uh, to circled where I operated or where I circled operating income, uh, where it's going to be negative 22 million, and then negative net income where it's going to be negative 22.5 million. 
Despite the story showing an optimistic view, we have to go back to the number one principle of investing. Stocks only go up and stay up if they are growing revenue, cash flow, and earnings. When you look at the income statement that I'm going to reference here, here above, like I mentioned before, I circled two areas that Global E is operating unprofitably. The only thing this means in many cases is that the business is investing for growth. The next questions we must ask ourselves is what is their cash position? Are they losing cash? And do they have enough cash to scale their growth, growth plans? And if they run out of cash, what is the likelihood that they will dilute their shareholders? When thinking of the cash position and cash flows of the business, this is a lot like the overall health report of the business. If a business is losing cash faster than it's taking in, they must be close to or trending toward operating profitability. If they don't, the stock will sink and investors are running the risk of losing their entire upfront investment over time. In regards to Global E, what is their cash position? And you can see that their cash position is going to be about $510 million. Their current debt, and I'm going to reference all of this here, but just make sure you take mental notes, uh, $510 million for cash. Current debt is about $2.5 million. And then their total long-term debt is about $18.8 billion or million. The balance sheet is arguably one of the most important financial statements to know and understand. If you have ever went to the doctor before and they run a bunch of tests, take your vitals, etc., and they come back saying, everything looks good, or I'm concerned about XYZ levels, the balance sheet acts a lot like that, except it's the internals of a business. For the sake of simplicity, I circled the three most important areas on the balance sheet. Like what I mentioned before, you can the cash position was $510 million, the current debt was $2.5 million, and then the long-term debt is going to be $18.8 million. On a side note, the entire sheet is important as assets should always exceed liabilities, and the more equity a business has, the more valuable the share price, you, share price usually is. If a business has negative equity, the stock price likely won't ever move. The circled areas in this income statement, or the balance sheet, excuse me, the balance sheet, um, represent the total cash balance, the total current debt, and long-term debt. If I were to make a comparison to personal finance, this would look a lot like your, excuse me, this would look a lot like your checking and savings account, where essentially like your cash balance, your credit card, which could be considered as current debt, or your home and auto loan debt, which is essentially a lot like long-term debt. A rule of thumb, between current and non-current assets can be thought of as liquid or illiquid assets. Think stocks versus real estate. In regard to current and non-current debt, think about is the time that it needs to be paid back. Current debt usually needs to be paid back within 12 months, and non-current debt is usually lower interest and doesn't need to be paid back for a few years. Global E's balance sheet reflects the 500 million cash balance, 2.5 million in current debt, and 18 million in long-term debt. This is extremely easy to see that this is a healthy balance sheet because they could pay off all the debt and still be sitting in a great cash position. This tells us when we go back to our original thesis developed about the growth story that they have a healthy amount of cash on hand to continue to funnel into their business. Next, I would argue the most important part of this entire process and the most overlooked when looking into any company. We need to go back about what about what we know about what uh, oh, we need to go back about what we know about Global E at this point. Number one, we know that they are that they enable cross-border e-commerce after looking at their website. Our market analysis led us to believe that this market 
the international e-commerce market, is going to keep expanding for years and years into the future. We know competition is relatively low on a direct basis, but on an indirect basis, there's some competitive risk. After looking at the income statement, we know that they are not operating profitably on a gap, generally accepted accounting principles basis. We know that they have a healthy balance sheet with low to no debt and a solid cash balance. The only thing we need to understand is how much cash is the business bringing in or spending? This is arguably the most important question to ask about any business. What are they producing or what are they burning? Remember, the only reason a stock goes up and stays up is the result of growing revenue, earnings, and cash flow. And when looking at Global E's cash flow statement, the entire picture comes into light. We realize that although they are not operating profitably, they are generating cash. I highlighted both operating cash flow and free cash flow. And when we go back to that picture, their operating cash flow was approximately 24 million and their free cash flow was about 21.7 million. Operating cash flow is how much the cash the business is producing or burning just to operate. Free cash flow is how much the business still has after it pays off all its debts, taxes, etc. Free cash flow is, in many cases, more important than operating cash flow. This all tells us how efficiently the business model is operating and how well management is growing their business. In 10 out of 10 situations, the business with a strong cash flow will outperform a business with a weak cash flow despite growth or growth story. The price will often be less volatile and volatile and will not decline near as much as a money losing company. When comparing the cash flow statement and income statement, I need to bring up this fundamental importance when selecting potential investments, especially when they are growing businesses. Many investors make the mistake of dismissing that a growth stock may be a poor investment because their gap profitability may be negative, but this is not always relevant. In many cases, a growth business will reduce its bottom line operating income to a zero or slightly below zero. The reason they do this, this usually has to do with tax benefits and investing back into the business human capital through stock-based compensation. Datadog provides a perfect example of this. And you, I provided another picture here of Datadog where you see that they've successfully scaled their revenue consistently, but are still yielding gap on profitability. And on Datadog's full year income statement, their operating income is, is still negative. But when you pull up Datadog's cash flow statement, you can notice that they are that their operating cash flow uh, at the end of this latest quarter was about 115.8 million, and then their free cash flow was about 106 million, uh, roughly about 107 million. And essentially, when you when you break this down a little bit more, and if you broke down the operating cash flow, uh, you can see that stock-based compensation is at approximately 56.3 million. If they reduced this one line item, they would be get they would be operating gap profitably. Uh, the tax code incentivizes businesses to report a gap loss. Many businesses will use stock-based compensation as an incentive to their employees to increase their overall income. Essentially, it's a it's a way to pay less in salary to invest into other areas of the business. So essentially, they're taking money from the financial markets to give back to their employees. So Datadog is a very profitable business. They are generating large amounts of cash. A few other businesses that do this will be Zscaler, CrowdStrike, and Snowflake. 
Many of the business tech stocks in the markets do this as they continue to invest for growth but still produce healthy cash margins. Investors should be focused on these cash flow market margins, not always gap profitability. And if the growth and if growth is your focus as an investor, then at least find businesses that generate meaning, meaningful cash flow from operations and free cash flow. Globally, globally has positive cash flow and 90% plus revenue growth. So when we bring the financial statements to life, let's go back to Global E. I posted above. This is what we know about their business. We know that they enable cross-border e-commerce after looking at their website. Our market analysis led us to believe that this market, the international e-commerce market, is going to keep expanding for years into the future. We know competition is relatively low on a direct basis, and on an indirect basis, there's some competitive risk. After looking at the income statement, we know they're not operating profitably on a gap basis. We know that they have a healthy balance sheet with low to no debt and a solid cash balance. And now we know that they are operating profitably on a cash flow basis. This is important as it shows the business is scaling for growth while managing its business operations and cash positions appropriately. Knowing the details of the financial statements validates us to accept the risk that comes with any company. At the very minimum, we have the confidence in knowing that the business won't go out of business because they are capable of operating profitably with their existing model. Over time, as investors, we will constantly be seeking to see improvements in the bottom line metrics and consistently in revenue growth. The reason why we do this is that the only reason a stock goes up, it generates more revenue, earnings, and cash flow over time. Nothing else matters. This is the only reason a stock goes up and stays up over time. The fluctuation in the stock price is only the result of a perceived future return on capital. This varies with recession risks, interest rate adjustments, and sentiment of the future of the business. Valuing a business, a difficult but necessary task. Valuing a business is difficult, especially in growth markets. Traditionally, PE was king, specifically trailing 12-month PE. This is a metric that holds true even in bear markets. It's a metric that was foundational in Benjamin Graham's the author of The Intelligent Investor, his thesis when value investing was born. However, market cycles are real. This means that the metric won't always work. And, in, and some of the largest gainers in history have been growth stocks. Investing in some of these growth stocks at a good price have produced life-changing returns for tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of investors all around the world. The P.E. ratio is essentially the price to earnings ratio, or market cap divided by earnings. You are paying a price for a certain amount of earnings. If you are paying 10x PE, you can expect to get your initial investment back within 10 years. That's assuming that there's no growth in the business in the form of earnings. PE and forward PE is relatively straightforward. When first looking at a more mature company, using trailing 12 months PE may be the way to go, <clears throat> especially if they have little to no growth. However, if a business is growing profitably, it is more feasible to use a forward PE metric. The forward PE is essentially, is essentially the predicted earnings in the next 12 months. If a business is growing, a good rule of thumb for value investing would be if a business is growing 10% year over year, use a forward or think about buying the stock at a less than forward PE of 20. If the business is growing 20% year over year, then a good buy zone would be a forward PE of less than 25. If the business is growing 30% year over year, then a good forward PE to buy the business at is under 30. 
When it begins getting complicated is when a business is growing extremely fast. Investors need to know that the earnings are being pulled out from the future and that that and that <clears throat> and that is what the business would otherwise be valued on. So when you pull the earnings from the future. The best way to think about this is that for many stocks, they are priced five to 10 years in the future. This means that both value companies and growth companies, their real PE is being measured five years in the future. If a value company is growing at 10% a year and the projected five-year PE is going to be approximately 10X, then a growth company would also have a forward PE of 10X five years into the future. However, the market often discounts this based on growth projections, the size of the business and the estimates cost of future cash flow based on interest rates, etc. Yes, this is complicated and it's a lot. And there's another way to make this more simple. <clears throat> growth stocks, especially unprofitable hyper growth stocks, are often trading at revenue multiples. And then I provided a picture here from at uh, Jam and Ball. That's his Twitter tag. And it shows, it clearly shows that high growth companies typically trade between 10 to 15x sales. As a rule of thumb for growth companies, you can think of it like this a high growth company is growing over 50% a year, medium growth, about 30 to 50%, and low growth is under 30%. When using the price to sales or enterprise value to sales, it is helpful to know the difference between the two. The market cap of the company is considered the price or valuation of the business. The market cap is essentially current share price times the total number of shares outstanding. Basically, it's the total value of the company if you were to buy it out completely today, and this fluctuates daily based on current trading value of the individual share price. Enterprise value is the price of the business when you factor in the cash and debt on the balance sheet. It essentially helps factor in risk. The equation to use here would be market cap minus cash minus debt, and that would equal the enterprise value. When trying to find the numbers to all these metrics, it's helpful to use a tool like Yahoo Finance, who provides all these numbers for free. To find cash and debt, refer to the balance sheet like I mentioned above. In order to find the market cap, Yahoo Finance does a great, great job of keeping this data up to date on their platform. To keep things simple and to help me understand or determine if a stock is over or undervalued, I usually quickly look at the price to sales ratio. This is a very fast metric investors can use to get an understanding of where a lot of these companies are trading. I prefer to use other metrics to really dig in to understand the full story of the business, and I'll cover that just a little bit later. But let's use a few examples of companies with price-to-sales valuations that I own. So you got Datadog, and this is one company that I own. It's application monitoring and this term called DevSecOps, or Developer, Se Developer Security Operations. Uh, it's a SaaS-based business model. Their market cap is $49 billion. Uh, their expected full-year revenue is going to be $1.5 billion. And then their 2022 expected growth is 50%. And that their fiscal year uh, 2022 price-to-sales ratio is 33x. <clears throat> Snowflake, who has a market cap of $73 billion. Uh, full-year revenue expected to be $2 billion. Expected growth is 67%. And then their price-to-sales ratio right now is 36.5, so it's higher than Datadog. Zscaler, market cap, 35 billion, full year revenue, 1 billion. Uh, expected growth rate is gonna be at 55% for this year. And their price to sales ratio is 35. Confluent, um, a new one. Their market cap is smaller at 12 billion. Their full year revenue is expected to be 550 million. And their expected growth rate is 41%. Their fiscal year 2022 price to sales ratio is currently 24. Sentinel-1 has an $11 billion market cap. 
Their expected full-year revenue is $370 million. Their expected growth rate is 80%. And their price-to-sales ratio is 30x. DigitalOcean, their market cap is going to be $6.7 billion. Their expected full-year revenue is $570 million. And their anticipated growth rate is 32%. Price-to-sales ratio is currently 12. Global E, what we've been talking about this whole time, the market cap is $5 billion. Their full-year revenue $420 million. Expected growth is 70%. And the price to sales ratio is 12x. And DLocal is a $9.7 billion company. Their expected full year revenue is going to be $410 million. Their expected growth rate is 70%. And their price to sales ratio is 24x. Upstart is going to be $10 billion. Their full year revenue $1.45 billion. Expected revenue is 67% this year. And their price to sales ratio is 7x. And then Palantir, their Market cap is $29 billion. Full-year revenue is expected to come in at $2 billion, and their expected growth is about 30%. Their price-to-sales ratio is currently 15x. And I used all those sales or all those metrics from Seeking Alpha. The reason why I said all this is that there are a few points that I want to make here in regards to valuations. Most investors stop here at price-to-sales and see certain businesses trading at high price-to-sales ratios or even low price-to-sales ratios and quickly determine if a business is over or undervalued. For example, Upstart is growing extremely quick, but their price-to-sales ratio is only 7x. Um, but in comparison, Datadog is trading at 33. Why would this happen? In addition, when we compare Global E and D Local, their price-to-sales ratios are 12x and 24x respectively, but they are, are both expected to do roughly 400 million in sales this year. Why are they valued different? And I come, and essentially the whole point is that in growth businesses, the bottom line matters. Um, I provided quite a few pictures here where I showed D Local, Global E, Datadog, and Upstart, um, their top and their bottom line metrics. And when you look at these businesses, you will notice that the bottom line metrics vary from business to business. Remember what I mentioned above, stocks only go up and stay up because revenue, earnings, and cash flow go up over time. If a business like Global E does not produce as much earnings as another that I, that I own, D-Local, you quickly notice the disparity in the, in the valuation. Remember, Global E is 12x, D-Local is approximately 24x price to sales. When comparing Upstart and Datadog, the understanding is in the details. Remember, Datadog was 33x price to sales, Upstart is 7x. Let me first say that not all revenue and earnings are made the same. Certain revenue is more risky than other business models. Datadog, in this case, is a software-as-a-service based model, which means that a majority of the revenue is in the form of a subscription. It's predictable, it's safe, and it's mission-critical application. And it's a mission-critical application in another business. Upstart is not predictable, and it is subject to the variabilities in the credit markets and overall investor appetite. When reviewing Upstart's business model, we know that the yield that they yield revenue from loans that they originate and sell to investors onto Wall Street. Questions immediately come up like, what happens if the credit markets tank? What if what happens if investors don't want upstart loans anymore? These unanswered questions make upstart more risky, thus justifying the lower valuation. Valuation could be thought of as a spectrum in the sense that earnings and quality of revenue all play an interchangeable role. Remember, in the beginning of this publication, I said that we are in a market to buy and sell business equity. This means that a stock's price is only what another investor is willing to pay. This price moves based on perceived risk, revenue, earnings, and cash flows, but it only goes up 
as the business consistently improves revenue, earnings, and cash flows. In regard to a lot of the bottom line metrics and and how you would value businesses like enterprise value to EBITDA, enterprise value to gross profit, and enterprise value to free cash flow. Recall when I mentioned that using price to sales is a quick way to measure a company to see if it is overvalued or not. A significantly more durable way to quantify the value of a business is by benchmarking its price to bottom line metrics from historical measures. In more simple terms, a few key metrics you can use are enterprise value to EBITDA or EV to EBITDA, enterprise value to gross profit or enterprise value to free cash flow. Some may be aware of what EBITDA is, but let me briefly touch up on exactly what this means and what it measures. EBITDA is otherwise known as earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. This is a way to measure a business's profitability before variable metrics and taxes. To break this down further, interest is otherwise known as the interest a business may pay on its debt. Uh, taxes, obviously, with the, what you give the government. And then depreciation and amortization. This is writing off of an asset, both tangible and intangible. Think of it like you have a car. That's an asset, but you it depreciates over time. Businesses can write that depreciation off to make it look like they're making less money. Many of these costs don't necessarily reflect exactly how profitable the business may operate. In addition, many businesses use adjusted EBITDA, which basically means that they are factoring in stock-based compensation and potentially a few other metrics. In both cases, if I said simply, we can conclude that EBITDA is the way to measure a business's ability to be profitable. Gross profit is relatively straightforward in the sense that it's a fixed cost to sell a product. For example, if you want to sell shoes at a shoe store, the gross profit would be how much profit you, you are keeping after you sell the shoe. However, it costs you money to buy or manufacture the shoe in the first place. And it can be broken down like if you, were, if you had a Nike store and you wanted to sell a pair of shoes for $60, but you bought it from a wholesale vendor for $30. So that would realize a 50% gross profit once you sold it for $60. In many cases, valuing young hyper-growth companies on gross, gross profit is more useful uh, than price-to-sales ratio because it accurately reflects how profitable the business can be over time. Investors are significantly more likely to justify a higher valuation for a company with 70% gross profit margins compared to a company with 20%. Many SaaS businesses have that 70% gross profit margin, which is why you typically see them trading at a higher price to sales ratio than retailers who have 20% gross profit margin. Free cash flow is representative of the business's overall cash inflows or outflows. Uh, operating cash flow is just the cash generated from operations, but free cash flow may be allocated towards investments, paying down debt, uh, buying back stock. Basically, positive free cash flow is an excellent metric to have in any investment. It means that management is operating the business efficiently. When using any one of these metrics to value a business, it helps investors accurately value a business. A good rule of thumb is the further you go down the income statement to value a business, the better. Businesses valued on gap earnings are significantly less volatile than a business that trades only on sales. Uh, it, that's only traded valued based on sales. If we rank them from reliability and volatility and commonly used valuation metrics, we could rank them in the order of price to sales being the least reliable and most volatile, enterprise value to gross profit, enterprise value to EBITDA, enterprise value to free cash flow, forward price to earnings, so uh, forward PE, and then price to earnings, which would be trailing 12-month PE. 
the overall conclusion that we can make is when when you value these businesses and you try to um, buy them, like it matters what you pay for the business, right? So essentially, if you were to buy a business when it's too high, and this happened to a lot of different investors, including myself in 2021, when you ended up buying a lot of these businesses at, at very high price to sales ratios, the valuation got cut in half because interest rates ended up fluctuating, right? And this happens, uh, it doesn't matter how great the company may or may not be. Um, if you are paying too much for it, then your future returns are going to be substantially lower. If you pay a lower price for it, for a good business that's generating cash flow, growing earnings, and just growing revenue in general, then your returns are going to be, your returns are going to be substantially better over time. So in conclusion, this is one of the longest substacks I've ever done, but I knew I wanted to do it for all of you, uh, the readers and listeners. As mentioned before, I want to help, and Substack is often my way of vocalizing all the information I have to give to all of those who want to listen and learn. For those of you who read this all the way through or listened, thank you. But not necessarily thank you for reading my material. Thank you for taking the time to invest into your financial future. They often say that the first and most important investment we make is into ourselves and into our knowledge. In this case, I know I sound like a broken record, but I have to say it one more time. Stocks only go up and stay up for one reason, because a business successfully grows revenue, earnings, and cash flow over time. Stay tuned, stay classy, and until next time.